Good morning. I'm John, and this is the Daily Wrestling News Show for October the 18th. The world of wrestling is full of cliches and catchphrases. Do you smell what the rock is cooking? What you gonna do, brother? Bang, bang. To be the man, and on, and on. But what catchphrase was first uttered on this day in 1998? Hey there, if you're listening to this, then chances are you love wrestling. And if you care to continue the conversation with me, John, and other listeners of this show, then I invite you to join the Daily Wrestling News Show Facebook group. Just search for Daily Wrestling News Show or go to facebook.com slash groups slash wrestling news show and click join. We cannot wait to meet you there. The group is brand new, so if you're one of the first to join, don't be afraid to say hi. Now, on with the show. On October the 18th, 1998, the WWF presented the first ever Judgment Day, which was the 25th offering of the In Your House series of pay-per-views, live from the old Rosemont Horizon, a literal stone's throw from O'Hare Airport on the outskirts of Chicago, Illinois. It's another sold-out show in the Windy City, with five titles on the line in an eight-match main card. The show opens with Al Snow and Head taking on Mark Miro. Snow gets the win after delivering the snowplow, but the biggest story is the disappointingly small amount of styrofoam heads in attendance. Next up is a six-man tag match. Paul Ellering and the Disciples of the Apocalypse are out first on their Titan motorcycles. Why is Paul Ellering getting such a tepid response in Chicago? Oh yeah, their opponents for the evening are Chicago's own LOD 2000, Animal, the Returning Hawk, and Draws. LOD notch a victory after Hawk and Animal complete the Doomsday device, and Draws steals the cover. Hawk is clearly not pleased with Draws, but we all remember where that whole storyline is headed. What I didn't remember was JR calling their finisher the Devastation device. Can't say I recall the reason for that, but I won't dwell on it. Match number three saw Christian make his in-ring debut. He's still Edge's brother at this point, even though he sided with Gangrel against Edge when he debuted at the Breakdown In Your House event the previous month. Christian joins that exclusive list of superstars who win a title in their first match when he counters Taka Michinoku's eponymous Michinoku driver into a raw roll-up to take the light heavyweight championship. This man was clearly built for the WWF. Next up is Goldust taking on Val Venus. Poor Dustin Runnels. Last month I did a story that took place on the same night in 1997 where Brian Pillman came to the ring after winning the services of Goldust's wife and was treating her increasingly like a stress relief doll. Changing her wardrobe, adding new piercings, alluding to having a good time with her on the road in between cities. A little more than a year later, and now his estranged wife is happily parading around with a porn star. Not since Kevin Sullivan's booking days in WCW was a real-life relationship booked to its end on TV so blatantly. Goldust gets a measure of satisfaction with a yambag-rattling low-blow punt behind the referee's back and a 1-2-3 count for the win. The fifth match was a major bummer for me, watching Chicago cheer as X-Pac takes the European Championship from D'Lo Brown, the greatest European champion of all time, ranks at the bottom of my list of favorite moments of the evening. So enough about that. Next up, the New Age Outlaws managed to escape with their tag titles yet again. I feel like that was their gimmick more than just about any other heel tag team I can recall. I barely remember their wins to get the titles, but I remember a whole bunch of creative ways they managed not to lose them. Tonight's master plan 
was simply Road Dog breaking a boombox over the skull of one of the headbangers for the second time that month, giving Mosh and Thrasher a win by DQ, but assuring that the Outlaws left with the straps. Match number seven featured new Intercontinental Champion Ken Shamrock, who had won an eight-man tournament to capture the vacated title earlier in the week on Raw, successfully defending against Mankind and his new best buddy, Mr. Sacco. An interesting ending to this one, Mankind decided that he couldn't stand the pain of Shamrock's ankle lock, so he used his own mandible claw to cause himself to pass out, rather than give Shamrock the satisfaction of a tap-out. Have a nice day, Mick, you sick freak. Up next, we cut to the backstage hallway where Michael Cole and his crew are attempting to do some investigative journalism when they run into the recently returned Big Boss Man. Cole decides that discretion is the better part of valor when the new head of Mr. McMahon's personal security threatens to sodomize him with his nightstick. No Edward R. Murrow awards in Cole's future. The last match before the main event saw Mark Henry pick up a win over The Rock with a little help when D'Lo held The Rock's feet down to keep him from kicking out of Henry's splash. But this night was all about the main event. If you've been tuning into the Daily Wrestling News Show recently, you've listened as Ryan and I have taken you on a nostalgic trip to the heart of the Attitude Era and some truly timeless moments in the Austin-McMahon feud. Last month, McMahon screwed Stone Cold out of the WWF title at the Breakdown In Your House event. But Vinnie Mac's plan didn't follow through and complete the idea of who the next world champ would be. So the biggest prize in WWF has been vacant for three weeks at this point. The plan to get the title off Austin involved The Undertaker and his brother Kane. They were successful in their task when they simultaneously choked, slammed, and pinned Austin. The belief was McMahon, in his infinite wisdom, would then bestow the WWF title on whichever of the Brothers of Destruction he found most worthy. But on the Raw broadcast where that ceremony was supposed to take place, Austin bested the Detroit police and all of McMahon's security plans to get his hands on the WWF owner and lump him up good. After Austin was escorted to a local Michigan jail cell, McMahon admonished Kane and Taker for failing to protect him. Their punishment? They would have to fight each other and earn that title, rather than have it just handed to them. Even better, Austin would serve as referee and be forced to raise the hand of the new champion. Austin told McMahon in the weeks leading up to the event that he would not raise the hand of Undertaker or Kane. In fact, the only hand he would raise that night would be his own. McMahon countered with the threat that if Austin did not follow through properly on his referee duties, he would lose his job. On the night in question, Austin could not even be bothered to don the referee stripes. He came to the ring to the biggest pop of the night in his Blood From A Stone 316 t-shirt. How often was the grandest reaction of the evening reserved for the special guest referee? This man was so over with the WWE Universe, in terms of intergalactic space travel, he had gone to plaid. Kane and Taker did plentiful amounts of damage to one another and occasionally turns their aggression on Stone Cold in the match. When Paul Bearer inserted himself into the chaos, it appeared Kane would get the upper hand. But Bearer double-crossed his son and hit Kane across the back with a steel chair. Now, the shot barely registered in Kane's pain center, but when the big red monster walked down his daddy, the steel chair that was left on the canvas was picked up by the Undertaker and used to deliver a brain-scrambling shot to Kane's head. It should have been good for a 10-count, but referee Stone Cold refused to comply. When The Undertaker voiced his displeasure, he ate a stunner. 
Now with both brothers flat on their backs, a few feet apart, Stone Cold slapped the mat with both hands. One, two, three. The bell rang, but once again the audience was left wondering, what does it all mean? Austin grabbed the microphone and declared that the winner of the match is Stone Cold Steve Austin. He had kept his word and done exactly what he told Vince he would. Austin then got on the microphone again and challenged McMahon to show his face and follow through with his promise to serve Austin with his walking papers. When Vince didn't appear, Austin headed backstage. He checked a few of the offices just past Gorilla position, but all he found were WWF production personnel hard at work. So the rattlesnake made his way back to the ring and proclaimed that, just as he thought, Vince had departed the building without the testicular fortitude to make good on his promise. Just then, Vince's voice could be heard in the arena, and the Titantron was raised to reveal Mr. McMahon seated in a wheelchair in his luxury box directly behind the Tron. As Vince tried to address Stone Cold, he was initially drowned out by a chorus of 18,000 Windy City Austin fans calling him an asshole. But the boss wrote it out for a moment and hit Austin with the words, no one was counting on him having the grapefruits to deliver. Stone Cold, screw you, you're fired. And with that, a catchphrase was born. And Lawler and JR would have you believe a career was over. Stone Cold took the news in stride. He asked the production team for his music one last time and rifled around the timekeeper's area for some room temperature beers to give the WWF fans a four-corner salute and a sudsy goodbye. And it all happened on this day in 1998. Was Stone Cold actually fired? Of course not. Did he take some time off, get repackaged, or shift to a new feud? No. He appeared on Raw the very next night, held McMahon hostage, and had him literally pissing his pants on live TV by the end of the show. Man, what a time to be a wrestling fan. This has been the Daily Wrestling News Show for October 18, 2022. We'll see you tomorrow.